Well, if you're visiting or you're a guest with uh, someone here, a family member, or just here because you're checking out uh, church on Easter, we're so glad you're a part of this time with us. Let's, uh, this is not my, I don't normally have a Barry White voice. Um, <laughs> but for you, anything. No, um, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you. We really do thank you for the incredible life you've given us, uh, Resurrection Sunday. I, I'm asking God that you will help us in the midst of questions and these tough things of, uh, tough question even of doubt at times, that God, you would teach us and lead us in this sense of moving more fully into trust and what it means to trust, just to trust you in our lives. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, nine-year-old Joey was asked by his mother what he had learned in Sunday school, which is a good question. You want to make sure your kids are learning what they're supposed to be learning. He said, well, Mom, our teacher told us how God sent Moses behind the enemy lines on a rescue mission to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And she listened, and he said, and when he got to the Red Sea, he had the engineers build a pontoon bridge, and all the people walked across safely. And she kind of raised her eyebrows a little bit there. He used a walkie-talkie, in fact, to radio to headquarters to call in an airstrike. And then they sent bombers to blow up the bridge, and all the Israelites were saved. And she looked at him, now, come on, Joey, is that really what your teacher taught you? Well, no, Mom. But if I told it the way the teacher did, you'd never believe it. Um, I don't know at what age doubt begins to creep in, but everybody has doubt, everybody has questions, everybody is wondering at time to time. In fact, when we come to Resurrection Sunday, we sometimes think that, you know, what the Christian faith is all about is putting your doubts aside, putting all your questions aside, and just believing really hard something you don't really believe, kind of a thing, or you try really hard to believe. But you may not be aware of it, but there was real doubt all around the resurrection accounts of Jesus. When Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and all the others with them ran back after seeing the empty tomb and talking to the angel and Mary herself actually talking to Jesus, it says they told the eleven that Jesus had been raised from the dead and they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. You have those experiences before? That, that sounds like nonsense. In John's Gospel, we read that now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So at one point, Jesus shows up after that to the eleven, only really ten, if you get it. There was twelve and then eleven at ten at this point because Thomas isn't there. And when the other disciples told him that they had seen the Lord, he declared, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. He was pretty adamant. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Jesus came, and there is Thomas with them. And Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my side. Put your hand into it. Stop doubting and believe. Probably one of my favorite accounts of, of this whole idea of doubt around the resurrection is found in the last part of Matthew, Matthew 28. And it's just in a verse... It's right before the, the, one of the more famous verses that talk about the Great Commission. Jesus is with the 11, we're told, but there are 500 also out there because we're told also that Paul said and that Peter and others had mentioned that 500 were there probably at that amount where he told everyone to gather before he was to ascend. 
Now, he's been making appearances for 40 days. And now he comes kind of give his last words. And we're told then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. And they're at the mountain, the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. There's, the word worship here is the idea that they actually knelt down. There were some who actually knelt down. But some doubted. I think that's interesting. But some doubted. Now, if you find the resurrection difficult, you're not alone. Many others before you struggled with this. In fact, one of the reasons I love the Bible, one of the reasons I love this passage of Scripture is because it is so real. It's so authentic. I get a little nervous sometimes when people give you this idealistic, Pollyannish kind of view of things, but the Bible is just so kind of gritty and, and down there and, 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 and right where we all live. It just kind of tells us that it just was one of those situations where he's here before 500 and some were actually worshiping and some were still doubting. We're not told why they doubt, but I love the fact that we're told they did. So what do you do about doubt? We've been talking about tough questions. I'd love for you, if you're in a situation in your own life right now where you're asking some of these tough questions, go back and listen to some of those on the iTunes or, or on our YouTube. But if you think about it, one of the things that I wanted to, to, to cover today was this whole idea of the resurrection, but more the idea of what about doubt? Because this is one area that I think people doubt quite a bit. And... Uh, what does God think about your doubt? Some of you like roadmaps, and you know, they're like engineers. You like to know where we're going, so I'll kind of give you just a quick little roadmap. We're going to talk about the reality of doubt, and we're going to talk about the fact that there's some positive to doubt, and then there's some negatives to doubt, and then we're going to talk about the choice. The choice when it comes to doubting. At a certain point, there's a, the choice, a line you have to cross. And we'll talk about that in a moment. The reality of doubt is this, though. It's okay to question. People don't really realize that. They think often, often in, the, in the Christian faith, there's this kind of idea that, you know, you just got just to believe without any kind of question, any kind of doubt. You know, yeah, what's being told to you, what's being taught to you, just, you know, no, the Word of God is so clear. In fact, God gives you a mind to use it. I find it interesting that, that, that God is not opposed to doubt. And if you really think about it, God has faced more doubt than anybody in this room, Right? From the very beginning, did God really say? Just think of all the people that have doubted God. And through their doubt, eventually came to a place of faith. So you're not alone at all in that. In fact, what is really interesting about this whole idea of doubt is that God allows people to have doubt. I think he almost expects us to have some degree of using our mind that would question and begin to try and get to some deeper understanding. But eventually, there is a point of revelation where you come to a place of you have to choose faith. The women tell the 11, and they don't believe. And what I find is interesting that, that Jesus doesn't go, oh, man, these guys have been telling how long, and doesn't walk away from them. See, I don't think God, through Christ, ever walks away through, from honest doubt and honest questions. Jesus, in fact, actually comes towards them. He actually comes towards them because they're honestly just, they don't get it. They're, they can't put it together, so he honestly moves towards them and says, take a look at this. And he asks them to go ahead and put their hands in their, in their fingers. In their, in, and, and at one point it says, why are you troubled? Why, um, why do you continue to have doubts rising in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself touch me and see. And then after he shows them his hands and feet, Luke continues in this verse of Scripture. And he says, they still end up, did not believe because of joy and amazement. So then he asks them, you know, would you, do you have any like wings and nachos? Or, or maybe fish sticks. Let's, you know, use that. Because he goes... Ahead and shows them, even though they've seen this, 
he gives him even more evidence that he's not a ghost by eating. Now, that's a God who doesn't get angry at honest doubt, but begins to move towards you. He does the same with Thomas. I think he does the same with the 500. It's kind of interesting. There's 500. So just imagine, there's a group of people like this. Jesus is there. My guess on that day, this is before Benjamin Franklin, you know, had done the bifocals. Some guy in the 1200s actually invented eyeglasses. Some of you are wearing eyeglasses, right? My guess is that Jesus is so loving, so kind. God is so good at wanting to make sure that we have enough evidence that eventually we can choose to believe that he starts to move towards them so that they can actually see him. That's what it says in Scripture. It says, then he went to them and he began to move so that you maybe don't have as good an eyesight can begin to see. That's pretty amazing that God would act like that. I find it interesting that God is a God who loves people who are honest and who are honestly, as they question, moving towards him because he will move towards him. He will present eventually enough evidence that you will at some point not have certainty necessarily, but enough probability to say, I got to make a choice. So honest doubt, he moves towards you. are not alone if you're in that. Disciples, Thomas, some 500, even great saints throughout, the, throughout our faith. Tom, uh, Martin Luther doubted. Here's something I think is interesting. Billy Graham, he's near 90. He was asked if he believes that after he dies, he will hear God say to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay, he's 90. He's given all of his life to tell people about Jesus. He's asked, will you hear this? And Billy Graham pauses and says after a surprising inner struggle, I hope so. Now we all kind of go, you see, everybody has questions. Everybody has some sense of doubt. I meet with some guys, some uh, friends of mine from college who have made some um, real marks in Christian faith, have done some things. It's really interesting. I meet with these four other guys, and so often what will happen is a couple of them will just begin to share some of their questions, some of their doubts. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, I'm not wired that way. Some, some people are more wired that way. It's just a reality. As I was uh, preparing for this, I had an opportunity to meet with Dorothy Hanson. Some of you know Dorothy, and Dorothy, I'm going to ask you to come up if you would right at this time and just share, because um, Dorothy shared with me as she served here, and she's had such an impact on so many in the church. She just shared with me, there's been some times in her, fight, in her life where she's had doubt. So, Dorothy, you know, why don't you share with them a little bit, maybe what you shared with me. Good morning, everyone. I've loved Jesus since I was a little girl. However, there have been critical times in my life when I suffered agonizing doubts. Through those times and loving ways, God brought me back to faith. I'm thankful and joyful for my lifelong and tested faith. When you said tested faith, and we talked about that, the whole idea of a tested faith is an interesting concept because there's a sense that we we sometimes don't realize that that God even actually uses doubt to get underneath things, sometimes to to take away some assumptions that we might have grown up with in order to bring about a greater, purer faith to, to maybe answer some questions and, and even uh, cause us to, have, um, to grow deeper. Did they find that true in your life? Um, looking back, absolutely. I've had a couple of major times when I had doubts in my life, uh, but they both strengthened my faith in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first college and post-college years because of that very hard experience uh, of doubt, I went way deeper in understanding my faith and recommitting to the Lord. What helped me most at that time was intelligent Christians who weren't afraid of questions 
and who had some awesome and not simplistic answers. Over a period of several years, off and on, their help boosted my faith immensely. So I like this is the fact that someone didn't just come up to you and go, you know what, just believe. But they took seriously your honest doubt and said, you know, let's work through this. Cool. Absolutely. The second main time of doubt for me was following the death of my beloved husband. But the outcome was not so much a deeper understanding of the Bible or intellectual faith. It was more experiential. Love from others, many of whom are in this room. And a new kind of experiencing God in my life. No new answers as such. Just a ton of love ending up somehow for me in a much deeper trust in a kind-hearted God. Amen. Thank you for sharing that, Dorothy. I appreciate it. Thank you. I really, I really appreciate Dorothy because I have these coffee times with her, and she's incredibly bright. And uh, I love that second part of doubt, which was generated more by a loss of someone, her husband, which wasn't so much an intellectual thing, although that can happen, but it was more a experiential thing. And then people came around in love. And love in, 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 in life sometimes causes us to begin to settle back and to be able to trust this kind, loving God, which you said. So, you know, you may be in that kind of situation. But there is also a positive side of doubt. You know, that's the reality of it. Some people are just even wired that way. And God doesn't move away from you. I think he actually will move towards you in honest doubt. There's a positive side of doubt. In fact, when asked what's the most important um, command, when asked the question, what's the most important thing, Jesus, when you look at the Old Testament and all that's written in it, his response is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now that's Deuteronomy 6.5, but you know what? He didn't end there. He added one other thing to Deuteronomy 6.5. He said, with all your mind. See, God gave us a mind. He wants us to use it. He wants us to be aware of those kind of things that lead to becoming loving people. What lead to a kind of faith that is whole and is pure, that really trusts in a God and, and walks in a relationship with this God. Not in a set of truths, but in a personal relationship with God. There are some very positive things of doubt. There's some very legitimate doubt where God doesn't want us to be gullible and just accept anything anybody says. In fact, there's a guy named Jim Jones. Anybody remember this guy named Jim Jones a number of years ago? He started a, a church and he gathered people around him, and then eventually um, the people that were around him, he started to tell them the government's kind of look into our stuff and began to say we need to, you know, he was feeling persecuted like cult leaders do. Went to Guyana, took this group to Guyana, started this compound of people, named the town humbly using the name Jonestown. Um, and then one day when the things got really bad and the government was starting to crack down on him, he had all of them line up, 909 people lined up to drink Kool-Aid, and those people all died. I want to tell you, God wants you to use your mind, wants you to really doubt some of those things that are really about not God at all. There's some real positive sides of it. But here's the greatest um, question I would ask you to think about when you start thinking about faith systems and about what it means to follow Jesus or any place that you think you're starting to look at. The, the real question you have to ask yourself is this, does your faith actually shape you into a better person? 
Think about that for a second. There's a worldview that you're thinking at looking at. Does it really make you a more loving person? Because that's really what Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then he said something else. Here's what Jesus said. He said, love others as yourself. When it comes to um, following God, Jesus was pretty clear on some things. He, he gave these kind of commandments. Now, there's people who take his stuff and go really crazy weird with it, but there's people who really know Jesus, who really walk with God, who really believe in him and trust in him, and they become more like Jesus tells people to be. Because it was Jesus who said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. It was Jesus who was the one who said, bless those who curse you. Think about it a second. It was Jesus who was the one who said, pray for those who mistreat you. In fact, those people who really follow Jesus, you look at their lives, those are the kind of people that you, they ended up being generous and sacrificing and forgiving and kinder and more truthful and they were more courageous. So I really challenge you to think about it. There's something good about doubt. There's a reality of it, but the, the positive side of it, one of the benefits is that God's given you a mind. And what you should really use your mind for is to say, as I look at any of these systems, and I'm not talking about even truth, I'm talking about this person, Jesus. Does this person, Jesus, lead you? to become a more loving person, a better person. There's a negative side of doubt. Everyone doubts, everyone believes. It's a matter of what you put your faith in. So everyone here is a believer, right? I don't care. You're a believer in your doubt, if you are. The question is a very legitimate question when it comes to doubt. And that's this, why do you doubt? Is it an honest doubt? That's what I'd really love for you to think about. If you're in a place where you're kind of holding back, See, the word doubt, the meaning of the word means to waver, to hesitate. It means to be kind of sitting back. Rather than committing, it means to hold back. So I want to ask you for a second, why is it you hold back? Some of you have been seeking, and you've been seeking to understand what does it mean to really know God. You've been seeking what does it mean to know God so that my relationship with others is different, that I'm a different person. And yet you kind of hold back, and, and you may be in a place of doubt. And I have to ask you, why is that? Is it... Is it an honest doubt? Because if it's honest doubt and you're really seeking to move towards God, he will move towards you. But if you're using doubt as a way just to kind of keep in control of your life, or you're using doubt in some way because you're afraid and fear has a hold of your life, or you're using doubt as a way of pride saying, I don't want anyone else to control my life, that's not honest doubt. That's just using it as a smokescreen. That's just using it as a way to kind of get people to stay away from you. That's just using it so the Holy Spirit won't be able to get past that little smoke screen because you've put it up there, saying, I just don't want, to, I don't want to move any closer. Are you living out of a reality that keeps you from a current one? Sometimes people doubt because they're doubting something that really isn't about God at all. I, I share this, um, one of the things I've realized in, in, in our marriage, and my wife is here so I can share this uh, with all. It won't get you in trouble, it's just about me. Um, I've had trouble at times trusting my wife because what I've done is I've recreated out of my own reactions something of a relationship I've had in my past and my family of origin. And my wife's not anything that wouldn't be anything that I should be reacting to. I think that happens to a lot of people with relation to God. You find yourself reacting not to God himself, but to some kind of authority figure that's been in your life or someone, a church maybe that you've attended at one time and painted a picture of God. You're not really reacting against God at all, the person God. You're not reacting to the spirit of God who wants to get into your heart and life and really change your life. You're reacting to what you once grew up with. And some of you may be in that place. At some point, doubt becomes limiting. You live in it long enough and you, you lose out. Thomas was in that kind of position for a while. He was 
He missed an entire week of celebrating, you guys. I mean, here the women came back and they told the disciples. They didn't believe it. Then the disciples see Jesus. Then the disciples, all these people tell Thomas, Thomas, he's alive. Enjoy it. Celebrate. And Thomas is kind of like the uh, biblical Eeyore. <clears throat> and he's just kind of like, yeah, I'm not going to, you know. Your doubt can keep you from some of the stuff that will change your life. Will keep you from knowing personally this God who loves you deeply, forgives you, and wants to walk with you, and wants to move into your heart and give you hope like you've never experienced before. Your doubt, in a sense, limits that. Thomas was limited for a whole week, only a week, though. A number of years ago, our family went to Wisconsin Dells to go down those water slides. Anybody ever done that? And we, we went down there, and we could only stay for a day. We stayed overnight, and that next day we were going to be there, and then we had to go again, so we didn't have much time. So we went there, and my daughters were five and three at the time. And I didn't expect my three-year-old to necessarily go down the water slide, but I was hoping the five-year-old would do that. And so when I showed her the water slide, and everyone's coming down, even a couple kids her age and how fun it was, we spent the day in the wave pool. It was, I mean, it was okay, yeah, a little bit of waves. And I'd take her every once in a while to go look at the water slide and go, look what we're missing, we could be going down that. And, and then one time I had my, my wife and my youngest daughter stand there with her, and I went down the slide, and look how fun it was. I made it, I survived. She had all kinds of questions, my, my oldest. Uh, she kept asking things. You know, she's five, fear was holding her back. Are you sure? Is it really safe for me? How do you know? You know force equals mass times acceleration, and I'm wondering... And she didn't, yeah, that's, she's not that precocious. <laughs> Just kidding you. Finally, with about a half hour left, with a half, she decides she wants to go down. So I walk with her with her little hand, and we go up the stairs, and the line was so long, it took like 15 minutes. We only had a few minutes left. We get to the top. I know that's probably the only ride we'll get to do. We get up there. She gets up there. She sits down in front of me. We come down to the thing, and she is screaming, having the time of her life. She gets down to the bottom, and she goes, Dad, let's do it again. Come on, let's do it again. And I felt so bad. Because we had one short little ride where we could have the whole day of fun. She missed out on it because of the fear and the doubt, and some of you may be in that place. You're already missing out on the good things that God has for you because you're holding back. Sometimes doubt is not just limiting, it can actually be deadly. Judas saw all that Jesus did. Judas watched it all happen. It wasn't like he needed another miracle. He just didn't believe. He just doubted this Messiah. In fact, he did more than doubt. Because underneath that dishonest doubt at times is the desire to really be in control. Judas wanted Jesus to be the kind of God he wanted. You know that? And you may be in that kind of place. Your doubt is really, really hiding. It kind of smokes you. You just really want this Jesus, this God, to be the kind of God you want him to be. And the reason we know that is because at a certain point, Judas went ahead and actually tried to get things going. He wanted a political Messiah. He didn't care about a spiritual kingdom. He wanted things now for himself. It was all about him. And so he goes and he basically betrays Jesus, hoping to set in motion the fact that Jesus will now stand up and be the kind of God he wants him to be. 
And he watches Jesus go to trial. He sees Jesus go to trial. He sees Jesus condemned, and he sees Jesus is going to die on a cross. And when he sees that, his doubt turns to despair. And his doubt didn't just limit him. It actually caused him to die eternally separated from this God, Jesus, who loved him. And he ends up hanging himself, foolishly trying to grab some 50 coins of silver, which he ends up throwing away anyway. Because in this life, it wasn't going to buy what his heart really was hoping for and longing for, but his doubt kept it from him. So there's a reality of doubt. There's some negative things. There's the positive things. But let me just share with you one of the things that I, I find is um, around doubt. It's not so much what doubt does to you. It is what doubt keeps you from. And so every one of you and every one of us have a choice. We have a choice. At some point, we have to make a choice. The bottom line is this. What do you have faith in? Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, is all about the church saying, here is someone, Jesus, who came and lived and showed us how to live, who died so that you could take the sin that you've committed against God, be forgiven of it, and was resurrected so that you could live a new life today and forever. Now you have a choice. You have a choice to continue to stay in doubt or to believe. And I'm just saying, I think for some, the Holy Spirit might right now be with his finger kind of on your chest because you feel the pressure. The Holy Spirit might be just kind of pushing his finger against your chest saying, you know, it's time to believe Jesus Christ. It's time to believe him. Now, you've probably heard this story before, but I'll share it anyway. Three men are in a plane. There's a pilot, a boy scout, and a really smart guy. He's the world's smartest man, in fact. Anybody heard this before? Maybe a few. The engine fails, the plane's starting to go down, and there's only two parachutes on this plane. So you got this guy, pilot, boy scout, smartest man in the world. Smartest man in the world grabs one of the parachutes, and he looks at the other two, and he goes, I'm sorry about this, but, but I'm the smartest man in the world. I have a responsibility to the world. And he jumps out of the plane. There's just one parachute left. The pilot's a little bit stunned. The Boy Scout is kind of looking a little dazed himself. And the pilot says to the young man, he says, Young man, Boy Scout, I've lived a, a long and full life, and you have your whole life ahead of you. And so he graciously hands him the last parachute to the Boy Scout. The Boy Scout looks at the pilot and says, Relax, Captain, the world's smartest man just jumped out of the plane with my backpack. Yeah, I know, pretty stupid, but anyway. <laughs> Our world is full of smart people jumping out of planes with backpacks, saying this is the way to live, this is the person to put your faith in, and it's usually just yourself. One of the paradoxes of faith in this whole idea of doubt is that it is the ultimate intellectual challenge. Yet simple and uneducated people may live with great wisdom, while PhDs choose folly. One thing's for sure, sooner or later the plane is going down, our lives will end. And pilots, smart guys, and Boy Scouts are all going to have to jump. And everyone takes a step of faith based on the evidence that's before them. And everyone has to choose some kind of life-saving parachute. And no one will know who chose wisely until after they've jumped. It takes faith. It's a matter of trust. It's a matter of trusting the fact that this person said and other people who have said it, is this person credible enough to believe in this one? Sometimes it helps to have credible people share 
how they themselves believe in our culture and our world. Recently, Fortune magazine listed 50 top leaders. Number one was Pope Francis. Number two was Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, who has done a lot of help in the whole European crisis. Number three was listed rock singer and humanitarian Bono of the group U2. When he was in town, or U2 was in town a few years ago, I went to it, and one of the elder statesmen kind of took me aside. I said, why did you go to that concert? I said, because I like the guy. Anyway, when asked about the leadership, Bono is quoted, and when he's asked about leadership, Bono is quoted as saying, real leadership is when everyone else feels in charge. Fortune magazine writes that Bono has lived by this maxim. He has helped global leaders write off debt owed by poorest countries, encouraged the Bush administration and other administrations to vastly increase AIDS relief. Now through his one and red campaigns, he's enlisting major companies and corporations and millions of people to commit to combat AIDS, poverty, and preventable diseases. And I love this interview because he's a really smart guy trying to make Bono look, I think, kind of dumb. So about God. Oh, right. And, and do well, you, I see I'm, the, per, the person of Christ is my way to understand uh, God. Do you pray? Yes. To whom or what do you pray? To and Christ. What way? To Christ. Yeah. And, and what do you pray for? I pray to get to know um, the will of God, because then the prayers have more chance of coming true. I mean, that's the thing about prayer, isn't it? I mean, we don't do it in a very lofty way in our family. There's just a bunch of us on the bed, usually. We have a very big bed in our house. And all our, we've prayed with all our kids. We, we you know, we just, we, we read the scriptures, we pray. It's not even regular. Sometimes if we go to church on a Sunday, we go when the church has ended and we'll just go in on our own as a family. For peace and quiet. For peace and quiet. And we'll pray, usually about people that we know who are struggling with something, um, illness or whatever. So then, what or who was Jesus as far as you're concerned? I think it's it's a defining question for a Christian, is who was Christ. And, And I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher or, you know, because actually he went round saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the Son of God or he was not. No, no, nuts. Nuts, yes. Forget rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like, I mean, Charlie Manson type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years, have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I just, I don't believe it. So therefore it follows that you believe he was divine. Yes. And therefore it follows that you believe that he rose physically from the dead. Yes, yeah, I mean, I've no problem with miracles. I'm living around them. I am one. So, so when you pray, then you pray to Jesus. Yes. The risen Jesus. Yes. And you believe that he made promises which will come true. Yes. I do. I just think it's funny that um, 
Some people make it so hard to believe that there really was a Christ who rose from the dead and that to believe that, and then yet millions and millions of people have, all people around the world. And, and you just got to ask yourself what's your doubt about. There's a brilliant man. His name was Blaise Pascal, one of the most brilliant mathematicians that ever lived. And he, he came up with this thing called the Great Wager because he always wrestled with doubt and faith. I mean, he was so brilliant. He, he was the guy who um, invented the first calculating machine, the first public transportation system, developed the probability theory and much of the mathematics of risk management, proved the existence of the, of the, of the vacuum, all of which set the stage for quantum physics, the insurance industry, Powerball lotteries, racing forms and vacuum pumps, the atomic bomb, and the outer space exploration. In fact, one of the biographers notes that he was the man who invented the modern world, this man named Blaise Pascal. I remember reading his book in college called Pensies, which is just a short book with all these incredible paradoxical statements of wisdom. And in it, he has also this thing called the Great Wager. Pascal was this very wealthy French aristocrat. He was fascinated by gambling, which was an obsession in the upper um, class 17th century French culture. And so Pascal really studied probabilities and was really into that. And he was yes, also a man filled with a lot of doubt when it came to this whole thing of faith. But he struggled with it. At a certain point, he decided that his doubt was really like a forced decision. He realized that his doubt really was a decision. In fact, he's, he, he kind of talks about there are certain choices that are like forced decisions. For example, if you decide to put off making a decision about getting in shape, your body will decide for you. That's a forced decision, right? See, no decision is a decision. To stay in doubt is really to stay in a place of no decision. Now, there can be questions, but you can still begin to move in faith and trust into what you know by the evidence that you see. Pascal says faith in Jesus is like that. When it comes to God, not deciding is, is deciding. Evidence alone cannot clearly indicate that God does or does not exist, says Pascal. We are now in the realm of what he says, probabilities. We must choose whether we will seek him or not. That's your choice. Not to choose is its own choice, says Pascal. Your wager began the moment you were born. The wager began the moment you were born. The plane's going down in a sense, and you will bet your life one way or the other. God either exists or he does not. Heads or tails, says Pascal. There is no third option called doubt. And here's his exact words. He says, when it comes to believing that God is and that God rewards those who seek him and then you move into faith, he says, here it is, let us weigh the gain and the loss in wagering whether God is or not. If you gain by wagering that it is, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. Wager then, he says, without hesitation, that he is. Believe who Jesus says he is. By faith and trust, begin to step into this. When Pascal died, a piece of paper was found sewn in his cloak. He had written it nine years earlier on a Monday, November 23rd. The year was 1654. Before then, he had been wildly successful, yet he was deeply unhappy. On the Monday night, that Monday night, he met God. He actually made the wager to say, I'm going to trust this Jesus who says he is the Lord and was resurrected. People knew that Pascal had changed. They didn't know what exactly had happened. One day he had been drowning in confusion. The next day he was free of it. One day he had been happy with his life, disgusted with the world and himself. 
And then there was this change in his soul. A simple indicator, probably one of my favorite with regard to what his life changing is, and I think one that every mother would appreciate, is that he began to make his own bed. Now, you may laugh at that, but he was so wealthy, he began, he began to start to rely less and less on servants, and actually himself became one of his servants. He became a better person, a more loving person. Pascal never told anyone about this night of fire, this life change that happened. Never breathed the word. No one would have known except by watching the evidence of his life. And then sometime after his death, his nephew and his servant were sorting through Pascal's clothing when the servant found what he thought was some extra padding in a coat that he always wore. It turned out to be a piece of crumpled parchment with a faded piece of paper in it. Pascal had actually sewn it into his clothes so he could wear it next to his heart. On it were the words, the day he made this statement of trust, when he chose to trust Jesus, he experienced something in his heart. And he wrote these words, pinned them right next to his chest. Fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the God of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God, grandeur of the human soul. Joy, joy, joy. And it scribbles out tears of joy. Vladimir Nabokov writes these lines, and I'll kind of close with this. He says, life is a great surprise. Life's a great surprise. But then he says, I do not see why death should not be an even greater one. And I thought about this on Resurrection Day. All of us, at one point, were in a womb, right? Everybody here? I think so. And you were born into this world. Who would have known in that closed little womb what would have been lying on the other side of what you experience today? And then there's this person, Jesus, who comes into this world, says he's God, reveals God, goes ahead, lives this life, encourages us to follow him, dies on a cross, says that death is for your sin that you might be forgiven. And then today, he's birthed from the womb of this world into what is called resurrected life and shows up to everyone and says, guess what? You can have this too. Trust me. Follow me. Let me change you into that person that you've always longed to be. Guess what? Life is a wonderful surprise, but guess what? If you in faith trust this Jesus, you will be birthed by faith into this life that Jesus evidence for us that we celebrate this day. Let us stand together. Let's sing this song. And as you're doing that, if you are in a place where you're beginning to say, you know what, I've been wrestling with doubt. We talk a lot about a next step. Maybe a next step for you is to say, I'm going to get serious and start to investigate this. Maybe you've never read the gospel and you've never read about Jesus. You just heard about him. Or maybe you've been held back and you know that your doubt hasn't been honest. Maybe today is the day you say, I'm going to start, I'm going to start attending. I'm going to start, you know. God wants to meet you right where you're at. And all he simply says is just open your heart. And trust him with your life. Let him 
bring this resurrection life into you.